Joe Camilleri, thank you for coming into the studio. On many occasions, I've had conversations with some of those wonderful peers of yours, those people who have made our Australian music industry so rich and so wonderful over the last 40, 50 years. (laughs) And I I have often remarked on how many of them were 10-pound poms, for example. I was a five-pound, but I wasn't a pom, but I was was on the five-pound scheme. You were a five pound, so you were cheap. We got you for we got, half we got the half price. price. Yeah, we came on the five pound scheme from Malta. What was uh, in the water? There's so many of you. Well, um, I, I don't know what was in the water in those days. Um, both my parents had passed on, so I can't ask them that question. But, but there was only four of us when we came out. There was only uh, my dad came out in '49, and and uh, me and my two sisters and brother came out in 1950. So I, I think it was, I think for mum, it would have been an incredible struggle on that boat. Bit of a journey with little uh, kids. Four kids, uh, you know, under what? I was two, four, f- under <laughs> six. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Phyllis was six years old. Uh, Frank was five. I was three. And Marianne was one. What did they tell you about their decision to move the family to Australia? Well, you know what? I've never, never really, never really had that opportunity to discuss it with them, uh, in a way. I mean, we the, they talked about it um, in, and the way that I got it is it was just an opportunity. They had to go. They Malta was was you know war torn, and so um, it got a heavy beating Malta. And um, it was uh, for Dad. I think it was either uh, he was going to go to Canada and uh, he. I think someone just copped back from Australia and said, that's the place you need to go. How many people did we nearly lose to Canada? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, well, because we were British subjects, so that you could only go to England, Canada, probably India. Yeah, but there's a long yeah. list of people that yeah. I'm, I'm glad Australia nabbed. Yeah. That's <laughs> yes. for sure. So, uh, so, he, we, we, so he, he chose Australia and, um, you know, they're both buried here and... Um, uh, yeah, I, I think they gave up so much for their children and, and, and their own life, you know, because what is the thing that you have most of all is you, you want to be around your friends, you know, you, you come to a foreign land and it's really all you have is your family and uh, it, most of the time it, it's not for years later that, that you connect. Sometimes your friends come to Australia. If they come to Australia, where do they go? This is a big place. Mm. Malta's 16 miles square, you know, 200 k's of something. And uh, so it's pretty easy to get around. But, you know, like if you're living in Sydney and your buddy's living in Perth, it's a long walk. It is a lot easier for people now, of course, Mm. with wonders of technology and you can just stay in touch with everybody on Facebook or or whatever you want. But um, it's an era, I think, of courage that my family has never had to find. Well, you know, um, yeah, well, maybe so. But, you know, there are different kinds of struggles. And um, look, I think for... 
for us, the hardest, I think, for my dad, one of the hardest things for him was, you know, he would work two shifts. You know, he wanted to get ahead. What did he do? He was a baker at night because, uh, and uh, he he was a metal shop worker during the day. So that was his... um, Two gigs for a number of years, and then he did. Every, he was a he was a good handy guy, Dad. He was a spray painter, did that for a number of years, and um, worked on the wharfs for a few years. He was just able to sort of do that. Are you a good handy guy? I'm kind of okay. I like the idea of it. I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll roll up. I'll do, I'll roll up my sleeves and I'll do it. I love uh, I love getting a result. Yeah, and um, and when I was working, uh, when I was working as a first class machinist, I, you know, I'd always there was some amount of pride in whatever it was that I was finishing, you know, because there they were one off things, like I'd build sprockets and things like that, and um, and they're always one offs, whether it's for a, a a big crane or or a motorcycle. Um, there, there was uh, that was a nice feeling. Do I like putting a nail in, in a wall? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> My dad reckons wood is his enemy. Uh, it's a really nice thing, wood. Uh, it's nice to feel. It's um, I envy carpenters, really, because it's, um, it's something really... Anybody that can do something out of nothing is... Um, I forget that I do that with songwriting, too. You know, like it's, 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 it's an empty page and... Then it's a full page. Yeah. And sometimes it's really good. I look I can look at it like that. But but you know, there's nothing like a tradesman that can come in and whip up a kitchen. You know, I'm still kind of amazed by that. Or or, or they can fix the bathroom and you say, oh, you know, and uh, you get the IKEA thing and you're saying you're looking at it like it owes you money. You got to keep a foot in a foot in a run in a hat in. Cause it's gonna get to you. I got to keep the one step by two, step by quick, step by big step.
Joe Camilleri is my guest here at 12.33 ABC Newcastle. Carol Duncan with you this afternoon. Your musical presence came into my life in that sort of toward the late 70s when mm. we were all in high school and living for Sunday night to watch Countdown. And Brilliant, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pretty special. And there yeah. was the sound of the footy somewhere in the background, but there was always countdown, and Molly and his interviews and his disasters and there was a lot of those. It was just <laughs> yeah, there were, but that's okay. But it was just magical, and it appeared to be a really interesting time in Australian music too, where um, some of the bands had taken off to the UK to try yeah. that through the sixties and early seventies, and. You know, varying degrees of success, maybe a little bit to the US, but not so much. But then Australia became really healthy. Yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, because we didn't have that information, those, the, you know, the, the front runners, uh, the Twilights and, and Johnny O'Keefe going well before him and all those people, you never got to hear about their successes or their, or, or you know, the heart, the hardship, you know, mm. you'd, you'd catch the five pound boat back, you know, like if you won Battle of the Sounds, it wasn't, you didn't win anything because you had to work on that boat for four weeks <laughs> before you got to England. Yeah. And then you had to work on a, a you know, your passage back. So they were the real front runners. And um, so, you know, Countdown was, it just became something else. It, of course, it was looking for stars and things, you know, it couldn't help because it was a popularity thing. You know, if they like something, if, if the kids like something, you know, it would automatically go on the charts if you're on Countdown, and that—that's kind of how it was. It was kind of exciting, but they were looking for bands that weren't necessarily didn't have a record. Yeah, my, uh, you know, and there was other shows that were also there was. It was like a fraternity of shows. You know, the ABC had um, had a ten minute show uh, just before Bellbird. And, and they'd have all these different acts. I just can't think of the name of the show just off the top of my head. You know, you, you'd have Billy Thorpe or you'd have, I think the Placo Brothers did that. No, we, we didn't have a record, but um, we were playing in Sydney. They, they, you know, they asked us to come to the studio. Things like that would happen. When we, uh, on Countdown, which was great, people knew about the bands. Someone like Jojo Zepp and the Falcons did very well, but... I remember going on that. I did have a sing. I did have a single called "Run Rudolph Run," but I hadn't played as the Falcons before that, mm. and and they just put it on, and and there I was, you know, like <laughs> one minute I'm playing and not being able to be, you know, just having a lot of people coming to see you play, but of course no record, no nothing, and the next thing, you've you've got a record and no one knows anything about it, and they put you on countdown. It's in the it's in the charts. The it's countdown amazing. and sounds and shows like that mm. would occasionally, particularly countdown, but occasionally sounds as well, um, would play those some of the Australian bands that no one had ever heard of. The up and comers meant yeah. that occasionally you got to see your mates on telly too. Well, that's right, and that was the coolest thing. What was really great about sounds? It went for a few hours on a Saturday morning, mm. right? So you, you just pretty much. Uh, you could almost just ring him saying, we're in town, can we pop in? And he'd have you in. 
he'd have you in and you'd just sit there in your drunken state and you're sort of as shabby as you can be. <laughs> Promise we never noticed. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, from the night before. And, um, you know, if you had a, if you had a video, he'd play it. If you didn't, you're just having a chat. Mm. You know, you couldn't do that today. To, you know, today you've got to go through the ringer. You've got to have, you know, it's really tight. And th- there was a beautiful time, not only because of Countdown, but because of there was something that was going on. I've always put it down to, t- to uh, late night, uh, you know, 10 o'clock closing, I used to call it. That's when the pubs used to close, you know. The 10 o'clock closing changed everything because instead of bands playing in halls, they were now playing in bars um, because, you've, uh, you know, you've got the 10 o'clock closing. So all of a sudden, if you're half decent, like the Falcons were, you would have 700 people coming to a gig. And getting on board, um, you'd have a whole bunch of songs that nobody knows. You know, you've either just written them or, in our case, you know, we're sort of an R&B eclectic kind of band. And and the word would get out, sort of like how um, Facebook does today, but only it was kind of with, you know, Mm. with drums and smoke. (laughs) (laughs) It still happened though, didn't it? (laughs) Well, it's, you know, the live thing's sort of healthy again, I think. And uh, that's one thing that I noticed over the years is that Australian bands, you know, I've played pretty much everywhere around the world, Australian bands can rock. And, and um, that's something American bands can rock and English bands, but pretty much the, everything else is kind of a little bit, you know, it could be a bit arty. And I'm not saying, I'm just generalizing now, but. Um, I think it's because of the the pub scene. Yeah. The pub scene is, was a really hard scene because if they didn't like it, they would let you know pretty quick. It was quick, a tough smart. training ground. It was, it was tough. And you, you're kind of invisible but weren't invisible because, you know, and um, you, would, you would know what a good track was. And so there all these differences. You would play your repertoire. You would play your album. Mm. You would play it in. You would know pretty much how the audience reacted to it to some degree. I remember uh, Shape I'm In, Croxton Park. I can remember it was like yesterday. We were just, I, I said, I've got this song. Uh, it's called The Shape I'm In. And every the, the audience started grooving to this song. And I, I, a half-finished song. And the roadies come up to me and said, I think that's your, that's your single.
Joe Camilleri joins me on 12.33 ABC Newcastle talking about uh, another one of those wonderful and amazing Australian careers in music. Do you see yourself as a journeyman musician? Uh, well, I'm still, I'm, I'm still here, so on some levels I do. I, I, I was kind of always, I don't know how people perceive me really, but uh, I imagine that people have followed what I, what I do on a different level, not from just from the hit songs, you know, just my audiences have liked things that I've done from an, on a, you know, uh, as a collection of music on an album, not mm. necessarily, you know, the shape I'm in or the hit and runs or the Harley and Rose or the chain to the wheel. Those things are valuable to you, you know, as a performer. Maybe I, I kind of realized that really early that, you're a square pig. Uh, that that's right, and and my whole thing would have to be that we're all in the same boat, the audience and the performer. So I'm I'm more than happy to sort of leave Harley and Rose out if it didn't work on the night. Mm. But it's not scheduled. Nothing's scheduled. There's nothing planned. I I haven't had a song list. Unless I'm doing something really small, you know, unless it's filming or something like that, or you have to be. With like with the Apia tour, I had to actually do those songs because that's uh, that wasn't my band. So you you had to do behave yourself a bit. You had to be that's right. Behave myself. Uh, I still got a few red cards, by the way. But um, (laughs) but when you're doing your own show, it's more about it's more about the event of what it is that you've got to offer. I've got. Um, I didn't, even though it's my 50th year, I didn't start recording really till, um, till 70, you know, 75 or something like that, or maybe something in 72 with the 73s around that time. That's long enough ago. Uh, Yeah. You know, so my whole thing is that if we can do it where there's no, there, there's no trigger points, you know, each song belongs it's part of the collection of the night, not, um, yeah. you know, thank you very much and good night. And that's all there is to it. You know, here's the songs that you wanted. Here's the package. You can buy this if you want to. Here are the stories I'm yeah. going to tell you tonight and I'll fit yeah. some of the songs around <laughs> the stories. Kind of that sort of, uh, my, my thing is, is, is to be as free as I can musically and, um, and from a, sh- uh, a performance point of view, I mean, there's only so much you can sort of do anyway, you know, but, but if you can make it as fresh as you can, I think you get, um, I think what I've been able to achieve is that people realise that if they come and see me in a couple of weeks' time, it's not going to be the same. It yeah. won't be the, the, some of the songs might be the same, but there'll be a different There'll be different things, so it's worth maybe coming to see it again. I reckon sometimes, Joe, I've got the best job in the world, but just at the moment I'm wishing I'd paid more attention to my music teacher because <laughs> that sounds pretty good. What am I going to do tonight? Oh, I've got 150 songs. I might play some of these ones. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's a that's a good pretty, decision to have a, to make. That's um, uh, no, it's not too bad, you know, like and... You know, it can be stressful and, and there's peaks and valleys and all this stuff, you know, and this, uh, you're always having a good look at yourself and you're always asking the question because no one taps me on the shoulder and says, look, I think it's time to make another album. I have to go through that, the trials and tribulations of all those things uh, and it's kind of good. I like being an independent artist on that level. You're up to 45 albums now and working on another one. Yeah, well, I've got uh, I've got this new double album called Endless Sleep. I've already got a title for it because it's um, it's twenty songs. When I was doing Certified Blue, 
I was actually recording other songs in between it just for f- what I thought was just entertainment value. Uh, and I was getting inspired. I tried to get inspired by something. So I'd say, oh, you know, I start playing on the piano, sort of Hank Williams, uh, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. And I, uh, and then I'd find another way of getting into that song and I'd say, press the button, you know, and, and we might record that. We'd record that. We might do it two or three times and just leave it. Whatever happens. What, and, and, what it, and then I kind of realised that it was the inspiration of these people that, um, you know, whether it's Gil, Gil Scott Heron or whether it's Lou Reed. or You got voices in your head, <laughs> yeah, Joe. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so I finished. And so when I finished Certified Blue, I had about nine of these songs and I realised that they were all, all departed. And I thought, wow, there's, there's, there's kind of some message here that I kind of didn't, you know, I was just doing it because I liked the songs. I wasn't, mm. I wasn't paying any attention to this, you know. And, and, and so when I kind of realised that they, there was a couple that they hadn't departed, but most of them, they had, and I thought, oh wow, this is what I, I this is what I need to do. You know, this is not the even though I've got uh, I'm writing new songs and I finished that album, but I, I need to make this record. And this re- the song by Jody Reynolds from the fifties came up in my head called "End of Sleep." I used to love this. Talk about the radio being king. Yeah, uh, they tell you when they're going to play a song. They used to tell you when they're going to play certain songs on the radio. I thought there it is. That's the title of the album, and it's also the the reason why I'm doing this record. What's the first thing you remember hearing? First song you remember hearing? First song I remember hearing is that there was this woman in Carlton. We used to uh, we used to basically live the in the street. Uh, some of the uh, the houses in Carlton they run off the the windows. You know, there's no there's no front yard. You know, so the windows is right on the street. Mm. There was this woman called Auntie Darcy. We used to call her that. I don't know why. But she used to be kind of really just a music fan, I guess. And she would just open the window and give us stuff, you know. And she would say, come and have a listen to this, you know. And I remember she said, this is the thing. This is the new thing. And uh, I probably would have thought it was going to be Doris Day or something like that. But it was um, Rock Around the Clock.
Joe Camilleri is my guest on 1233 ABC Newcastle. That early part of your career that we were talking about a while ago, that countdown era mm. was one thing and, and that was big and it was an interesting time of pubs and so on. And then you came back with the Black Sorrows, mm. which went huge. By accident, of course. As, 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 <laughs> as all good things as, usually as, are. I'd suggest again uh, that that perhaps mm, at the time with the mm, sorrows was a case of square peg, round hole radio mm, stations going, not quite sure where we put this. Well, I was pouring coffees. I just, I just had a hit with um, Taxi Mary and Walk On By. I didn't, you know, the great Walk On By, which I think I ruined, though I did do an interesting version of that song. And, um, it's here if you want me to play it for you. (laughs) I'm fine. (laughs) I I just gave up and I said, I'm just going to take some time out and I got a job. Well, it wasn't a job as a veggie roadie working the Footscray market. And it was just taking vegetables from trucks and putting them on other trucks. That was my gig. Had you just had enough? I, I just had enough. I had this really beautiful 13 piece band and we went around the country. We had two hit records. Uh, two hit singles hmm. and and a pretty big record with the chart record, but I wasn't very happy with the record and uh, it could have been so much better. But anyway, that not because it was my fault that it was wasn't as good as I wanted it to be. But um, but anyway, uh, it yielded these two songs and and we got to play and I got to use I got to do something that I wanted to do, which was to have the char band and play with six horns and all you know high heeled boots and gay cavalier, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. All that nonsense, but it just left me wanting when I, I just said, this is not really, it was nice. It's not what I want to do. What I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to get a, I think I'll just get a job. And it was, uh, well, it wasn't much of a job. It was three hours a day, but you had to get up at 5am done by nine. And, um, and you had a, you know, 20 bucks a day and, and, um, all the vegetables you can, you can eat. And, uh, and that's what I had. So I thought, oh, well. I'll get this other, I got this other job by meeting this guy who loved Jojo's Epp and the Falcons and he's just opened a restaurant and he said to me, um, why don't you come and work for me? You know, I'll, I'll give you a job. You can pour some coffees. So that was my gig at this place called the Cafe Neon. And I did that and, and Chris said, you know, why don't you do something on a Sunday afternoon? And that's how it all started. I was in love with this music called Zydeco Music. No one really knew much about it here, you know, probably, you know, some tastemakers might have known about it. And it was an unusual connection. We had, you know, that, that was the piano, accordion, violin sound, and mm. then there was the, the clarinet and the saxophone. We made up the horn section. Uh, the, the four of us made up this kind of sound, which was kind of a nice sound. And I recorded uh, an album of covers, really, apart from one song. I had a song called Blow Joe Blow. We, we, we did a couple of shows and people went nuts for it because it was different. It, it mightn't have been great, but it was heartfelt. And of course, I, I, it yielded a hit. It yielded a hit out of, once again, the weirdest thing. You know, Elvis Costello was in town. Uh, we toured with Elvis. Across the road from where he was staying was this place called, it was Discurio or somewhere like that. He's walked in there. He's looked at the, it's in the front. I was selling these. I would go to the record stores and actually sell them to the record stores, you know. Uh, in fact, there's a, next door, the Cafe Neo was a butcher and I actually sold him 10 copies. So it was a. <laughs> to sell in the butcher, <laughs> butcher shop. <laughs> that was a new cut of meat, wasn't it? Um, 
But that's what you do. You know, we kind of made the record in a day. We got some covers from a guy I knew. We hand, I found this other guy who, who designed the cover, found another guy who could make a screen print. We screen printed them, put them on the line. We did some T-shirts at the same time, you know, double, double dipping and, and got them out there. And he found this record. And I swear to you that he spent more time talking about this particular record than talking about the, what he's doing on tour. So it kind of just changed everything. And I had this one, uh, I had this one song, um, one of the covers. Most of, most of this record was from a, an album called Another Saturday Night. And, and that's where I got to hear someone like uh, Bobby Charles. I got to hear, um, uh, you know, the, and Zydeco music was sort of like New Orleans music, but they just kind of used it in a slightly different way. They used those sort of songs, those R&B songs where they went back to the 50s and they sometimes sang in French. More often than not, they didn't. But um, And so I had this album called Another Saturday Night. I basically wanted to reproduce that record, you know, and I did a couple of songs from that album. But I, I did a, a song called Brown Eyed Girl. And that particular song turned it around f for this band. Um, you know, when it, we, we'd only done maybe two or three shows for this record. I mean, this record was recorded in an afternoon and that was under circumstances because we weren't allowed to keep the tapes. We only had a day to record. It was a demonstration for the record, for the, for the, for the studio because they got a new desk in and they wanted someone <laughs> to try it out. Yes. And that's kind of how it happened, right? So we recorded a couple of extra songs, but I never got to keep the tape. So it was all by, you know, everything was just by chance. And then that led me to that point where all of a sudden we're a really big band and we were, we were recording things like Chain to the Wheel and we had, you know, the Bull Sisters were playing all over the world and we were getting, we're getting gold records in different parts of the world and platinum records in Australia and multi-platinum records. And, you know, it took us on a wonderful journey. Uh, and, um, and of course, you know, once again, you, you kind of, the bigger you get, the harder it is to stay there. You know, it's sort of, uh, I always ask this question, how come Paul McCartney wrote so many great songs and he can't have a hit record anymore? I kind of keep thinking about that. Or Chuck Berry, you know, how come Chuck Berry is kind of like the Shakespeare of rock? You know, where, what's going on, Chuck? You know, it, you, I don't know if you run out of gas or... But uh, for, as from a, a, the point of view of playing together, it, it was so manic. You're doing 300 shows a year. It was and playing all over the world. It was just so manic that uh, you know something had to go. And uh, for, unfortunately for me, I couldn't. I got this kind of thing where I couldn't fly anymore. You know, it was just in my brain. But I didn't fly for about four years, and that was kind of. A, if I was touring, I'd have to catch a train. That's I a bit of a problem, isn't it? It's a long it, way between it, gigs. That was a, well. There was a you know. I, I'd have to if I was coming to Sydney. I'd have to go overnight. Mm. Or, you know, it was kind of annoying for people.
served you very briefly, many, many years, 700 years ago, when I was working for your record label. And the sorrows at that stage were big, very big, successful band. Mm-hmm. And I recall one day you came in with your son. I think it was your son. Yeah, that Harlan, or it was some yeah. other very cute kid that yeah. you borrowed. That's right. And you just didn't look like a happy man. <laughs> well, probably, you know, I don't know if Harlan was giving me a hard time. But it, it was just really tough. You know, like we had a hit in Germany. I couldn't go. But I couldn't tell anyone. I couldn't fly anymore. And, and flying really killed my overseas commitment to taking the band there. So if you can't go there, of course, this is the whole thing. Today, you can actually do different things in those those times we I remember that I made a decision to go and live in England because I had to go if we we're going to do it we had to do it from somewhere in Europe to base mm. yourself somewhere where you can sort of jump off and and because uh, it was it was so fast Sony are trying to get me to at the time was with Sony and they're trying to get me to go to Germany this they said this is going to be a top single this is going to be top 10 it's already 18 you know get your keister down there and do it you know, do it pronto. And they, you know, and, and they're, they're not used to people saying no. They're mm. not used to people saying, and they think I want a business class ticket. I didn't care what sort of ticket it was. You weren't getting on a plane. I couldn't get on a plane. And I thought I was the only person in the universe, of course, at this time that couldn't do this. I thought it was a real sign of weakness. And that kind of created, um, uh, that created a, a really bad thing in, in me, you know. Mm. Uh, and I got it to a point, it was at a point where I couldn't almost, I got to a point where I couldn't even, if it was, if the sky was grey, I felt claustrophobic. That's how bad it was. I couldn't get outside the house unless it was a blue day, you know. So I'm putting all these things in front of myself, not knowing how to get any uh, assistance. And it was Harlan, strangely enough, that saved my life because I decided that I'm going to fight it. And of course, I was ready to get off this plane. I'd only get on a plane under certain circumstances. I had to have Valium. I had to have be in an aisle seat. I had to have water. I had to have someone that I could talk to. I had to uh, be ready to be allowed to get off if I, was, if I needed to get off. All these different things. And then Harlan got sick on a plane and somehow just changed everything around. It took me a long while, mm, you know, but that was attack, a, daddy. it was just a turnaround of that whole thing. You because know, so, all of a sudden it's not about you anymore. No, it's right. Mm. It was about the things that I really loved and, you know, just, it was just small trigger and it took me another three, you know, but I was able to then slowly do things and slowly strip away these things. And it was all about fear of failure, I think, when I think back at, you know, what I what stopped me, you know, and, and all those little things that that I didn't have with the Falcons and that uh, it was in them. When I was playing the Falcons, I, even though I was kind of, I was the leader of the band, I only always felt like, I always felt like I was just one of the musicians, you know. Mm. Because we're all in it together. But that's we're, pretty healthy, isn't it's it? It's a nice thing to know that nobody got any more than anybody else. And that, well, sometimes these are the things that you struggle with, you know, because what they do is, you know, the, uh, there was, you know, even in the, even in the world where you're, it, money becomes evil in this world, you know, in that, because some people will start making money and, and, and if you don't look after everybody else, the, some of them don't make anything apart from their, their mm. gig fee, you know, mm. and that's, and you know, all those things were able to be rectified, you know, but in, in those days we, we were all in it because 
it was all about just, you know, it was beer and Skittles, you know, wagon wheels and malt milks. There was no money. So it wasn't, it wasn't an issue, you know, like we were, we were playing six, we do 300 shows, the Falcons and, and the Sorrows, 300 shows. We'd get 300 bucks a week or 250 bucks a week. We'd have what four weeks off or six weeks off, two weeks making a record, four weeks off, and, and you'd get paid those six weeks, you know. <laughs> and the roadies were being paid uh, while we weren't working for those six weeks as well, you know. So it was all kind of like, so of course when when the band finally broke up, we didn't have any money because there was everyone else had it, you know. Everyone else that wasn't involved in the band mm. made the bulk of our hard work, you know. But no one felt bad about it. We all felt that, you know. Gee whiz, if you can hang out till you're 30 and you're in a band, you crazy. <laughs> you know, there goes your rock and roll shoes. And here I am 66 and I'm still throwing it out. But you, you wouldn't have thought that at the time, you know. You just think, oh, well, that's the end. And then making those records with, um, with the Sorrows, making those fir first four records independently with the Sorrows, was they, it wasn't that hard. It was just kind of, apart from the... I got to say the Dear Children album, which is my favourite record, not because it's got great songs on it, but because it was kind of I call my wedding album. It was I must have played a hundred weddings to make that album, <laughs> and uh, and it was just you know, and, and to get a gold record from Sony mm. from that was it's the only record that I have anywhere in the house. I don't have any paraphernalia, nothing, just that gold record, you know, and I've had multi-platinum records and gold singles and all that kind of nonsense, you know, arias and all that. Nothing is, nothing belongs in my house. But nothing beats the wedding album. Nothing beats that wedding album. That, there was something, there was the struggle of that record. It was, you know, it was so, if, if I can't make this record, I've got to make this properly, this record. I've got to record it on two inch. I can't be mucking around with that funny ADAT stuff. I've got to make this on a two inch record. We've got 24 tracks. We've got a limited amount of time. I'm going to run out of time because I've got 400 bucks. And it's it's like putting money in a machine, you know. <laughs> but it was a studio. They gave me some liberties and I got it done, you know. And, um, and it was just beautiful to hear it on the radio. Time is an ocean dragging us down. Hold on tight, dear children Death is the king Who shares his crown Break through the night Oh, dear children The truth is a razor Gleaming and sharp Open your eyes Send me your kisses Alone in the dark Say your goodbyes to the children Lay down your arms Strike up the band With a faith in your hearts Blood on your hands With the children With the children Oh dear children, brothers and sisters, you always say, oh there's fire on the mountain, Whoa. a black 
yeah, you know, I am, I am happy. I, I'm, um, I, I do believe that it's always half full. I don't believe the the other. You know, regardless of my, you know, as you get a bit older, you get a few barnacles. You know, you get sanguine a few... is a good word, isn't it? <laughs> I like sanguine. And uh, you get a bit, and, and you struggle. You know, um, you struggle with pain, but it's. Um, I don't call it real pain. I just it is pain, but it's. I imagine people. There are people with real pain. Uh, and, um, but I still have an upbeat concept and I still love doing the things that I like to do. And that makes me good. Uh, the really nice thing is playing music. I think that's the only time I can honestly say I get lost. I have responsibilities like we all have, you know, mm. I've got five children. I've got a whole bunch of things that I have to deal with on a financial basis. I have a record label. Um, all those oh, things. You're that, a business. Uh, well, I'm not really. I don't want to be a business, but you know, uh, I have to look after certain things. So, and, and I'm only as good as if 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 people allow me to to be that. If they they have to, you know, if they want to hire me. If I don't have a job, I don't have a job. You know, it's not like I can manufacture a job. But on some levels, I've been really fortunate. And I, you know, as we were talking a bit earlier, I think some of that is because of the, uh, the way that I've kind of navigated through things, you know, whether it's been a sort of dumb way or not, I don't know, but it, it, I haven't bothered about it too much. I don't worry about whether, you know, look, you're going to get ripped off. I've been ripped off. I don't care for thinking about it. It doesn't really sort of, it doesn't put my stomach in a knot. It just you is. Know, it just is. You know, some, there's been plenty of guys that haven't paid me. Mm. There's been lots of stuff where, you know, record companies have, you know, how do you know what your royalty rates are? Who cares? Sometimes, you know, I'm only interested, I'm interested in the day. I'm interested in what's going to be tomorrow, not so much what happened yesterday. So from that point of view, I mean, there's not, it doesn't take much for me to smile. So it's a good thing, you know, and I'm looking, I look forward to playing. It's kind of nice when people say nice things about you, but also if they say nice things about your art or your work or mm. whatever you want to call music. And um, it's just, I love having an idea and finishing it. You know, that's my tradesman bit. <laughs> I, I actually do love that, you know, because, uh, and I'm working on four or five songs at any one time and I need, and like we all are, you know, and some, some people are really blessed and they've got a beautiful voice. I don't have all those things. I have a different thing, but I, I have, um, things that, that, that other people don't have, you know, maybe it's called tenacity. Maybe it's a bunch of different things. I look forward to getting better at what I do, you know, so that, that's kind of good. I kick myself up the keister for being lazy. If I'm, if I've got an idea and I can't finish it, if I'm working on a, I need an intro for that. I need a chorus for that one. I need a verse for that. I need to change that. I need to wash that right out of my hair. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, um, you're laughing at that. <laughs> <laughs> no, because watching you is and, and talking about creating these songs and these pieces of music is like doing an interview with an artist who has got six artworks mm. on a, a line of easels mm. and is figuring out at what point they each become finished. Yeah. Well, I, I imagine Picasso doing that, just getting us, he's brushing a bit of, uh, and just walking past him, just going, that's done. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, as a producer, I find find the struggle with songs. You know, because I know every note, 
every mm. note on that. So I can't listen to the record, for instance. I can't listen to Certified Blue, the album. I can listen to playing it live because it's happening, mm. but I can't listen to the record. You Why? Know, because you uh, want to change things, uh, well, fix there, things? Well, there is a bit of that. Uh, the, you know, or unlike, is it just uh, done and you're moving on? Well, unlike the Falcons, you work through the song. With the sorrows, you don't have that opportunity to work through the songs. You have that time in the studio to work through the songs. Because it's not a, it is a band that's not a band. It's a band of people that get together, you know, like mm. they're, no one owns allegiance to anybody really much anymore. You know, well, there the was Black a time. Sor- how many members have been through the Black Sorrows? Well, you know, maybe 40 odd people, yeah. 40, 50 maybe now, you know, but, but, um, but the, only because we, we have beards now. We never used to have beards. I don't mean the beard that I'm wearing. The you know the we have Falcons. If if John Powell couldn't make it, you know, or or Gary Young or Wilbur couldn't, we couldn't play. Mm. We wouldn't play. If the lead singer kind of left the band of any band in those days, it would be over. You know, it'd be pretty hard. Not pretty. There's only been a couple of bands that found another singer that took it somewhere Most else. Don't. You know, you know. But um, it's pretty hard to do that. You know, it was one for all, all for one. If you are out, we're all out. Mm. We're not going to get a beard. You can't get a beard, you know, because it was, it was like, a, it's like a football club. You know, you have to wear the badge. You have to be, if you're in, you're in. There's no, you know, um, mm. unless we kill you, you, <laughs> you know, you have to die of natural causes. Okay. Before we sort of, I remember when Wayne Burt left, we were shocked. I thought when Wayne Burt left the Falcons, he was a, a principal songwriter, the best singer we had. I mean, the good thing is I had to step up and, and wrote the songs that, that made us bigger than what Wayne did, but he was a much better quality uh, singer and songwriter than me, still is to this day. But we managed to do that because we ended up with, um, somehow we got Wilbur Wilde and Tony Fazy, a really principal guitar player and a great saxophone player with a, with a sense of humour that sort of took us somewhere else, that propelled us somewhere else. That was kind of like an incredibly lucky break for us. But I always loved that other version of the band because it was more <laughs> musical for me. Anyway, so look, I go backwards and forwards. Sorry about that. Um, no, it, it, it is exactly why I love recording these conversations because they are important. Well, yeah, well they, there's value in it from my perspective. Um, normally I don't get this opportunity. so. Um, oh, look, it's a two-way street, but I told you I'm an archivist. Yeah, you, you certainly did. And I yeah. didn't understand that <laughs> till now. But look, it, it's... Um, What's really nice, you know, I know I haven't really quite answered that question about uh, am I happy. I think it's um, I'm as happy as I could be. You know, I, I'm just honoured to be part of the Australian musical landscape, really. You know, this it's just been, forget about the hits and stuff, just being, well, the hits made a big difference. But there was just something about people kind of enjoying something that you that you do. I think the biggest drug of all, or I'll put it this way, the, the, well, the best drug you can have is when, it, when an audience is singing back something yeah. that you've written. It's an incredible feeling. There's no drug like it, you know. So I imagine what it must be like for, I do it on a small scale, but imagine what it's like for the Stones or, you know, what it was like for just people just going nuts and just saying, this is, you know, I, I relate to this song. I, I kind of really dig this song. This makes me move. I don't even know what the song's about. Mm. You know, most men don't know about what the song's about. <laughs> Women seem to sort but of. That's mu- but that's why we love music, isn't yeah. it? Because it will make you feel something, but it'll be different to every person. 
That's right. You know, uh, I will grab my girlfriend and dance with her in the kitchen. Mm. You know, put a record on and I'll just... Just because. Just because. Joe Camilleri, it's been a pleasure having the chance to have a, a chat with you. Thank you very much for your time today. It has been an absolute pleasure.